If you will, open your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 5. Uh, Our text is verses 27 through 32. I'm going to expand our reading a bit this morning for the sake of some context. So we're going to begin in Luke 5, verse 27, but I'm going to read down to verse 11 of chapter 6. Again, just so you can see the flow of Luke's presentation. Today we will once again look at what to most American evangelicals is a very difficult and a very intimidating subject concept, that of what does it mean upon the hearing of the gospel for Jesus to say to us to leave everything behind and come and follow me. And to us, that sounds like such great sacrifice on our part to yield everything for the sake of salvation to the cause of the Lord Jesus Christ. But it struck me this morning as we sung again what is one of my favorite hymns. As we came to that last stanza, it seems like a very paltry comparison, a very small exchange for us to forsake the folly of sin, the, the, the uh, futility of life apart from Christ to inherit an eternal mansion of glory and endless delight in which we will ever experience the rapture of our the face of our Lord Jesus Christ. We will be forever enthralled. We will be forever in the experience of the delight of the Lord. We can talk about the streets of gold or the, the pearly gates or the crystal sea. Those are neat things, I suppose. But the greatest thing about heaven is that we will adore the face that we will enjoy the face of our Savior forever. And that heaven will be a place in which there will be no more darkness, but only brightness. And so as we think about this very daunting subject of the Lordship of Christ in the life of this man known as Matthew or Levi, and its application to us here in the year 2019 in little bitty Clay, Alabama. We might think that's a bit oppressive, Brother Tim. That's a bit heavy. That's a, that, that is calling for great sacrifice. But in exchange for what? The endless delight of eternity. And so look with me, if you will, beginning in verse 27, as we think about this call upon Matthew's life, this call to the publican, to the tax collector. And again, it's implications for us as we read. After this, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. 
And Levi made him a great feast in his house. And there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at the table with them. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And they said to him, The disciples of John fast often and offer prayers, and so the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours eat and drink. Jesus said to them, Can you make wedding feasts fast while the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. And he also told them a parable. No one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, he will tear the new, and the piece from the new will not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins, and it will be spilled, and the skins will be destroyed. But the new wine must be put into fresh wineskins, and no one after drinking old wine desires new. For he says, the old is good. And on a Sabbath, while he was going through the grain fields, his disciples plucked and ate some heads of grain, rubbing them in their hands. But some of the Pharisees said, Why are you doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? And Jesus answered them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry? And he and, he and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and took and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those with him. And he said to them, The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. On another Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching a man and was there whose right hand was withered. And the scribes and the Pharisees watched him to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath that they might find a reason to accuse him. But he knew their thoughts and said to the man with the withered hand, Come and stand here. And he rose and stood there. And Jesus said to him, I ask you, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or destroy it? And after looking around at them, he said to them, Stretch out your hand. And he did so, and his hand was restored. But they were filled with fury and discussed with one another what they, what they might do to Jesus. Pray with me, if you will, this morning. Father, once again, we thank you for your word, for your revelation of your son, Jesus Christ, for his call upon our lives, for his work, on the cross at Calvary for our salvation. Lord, your spirit came and inspired uh, Luke in such a unique way to give to us this order account. And Lord, may we understand it and may your spirit continue his work to apply these things to our lives, Lord. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the things that's noted in the Old Testament is this idea of God doing a great thing for his people and his instructions to his people then erect stones, erect a monument and then in latter years when you pass by these stones, this monument, I want you to tell the succeeding generations the great things that God did for you on this occasion at this place and all of us have those moments in our lives. All of us have those aha type moments in our spiritual uh, journey. And as I come to these texts, as I've mentioned on previous occasions, I'm reminded of one such 
dramatic aha moment. Uh, again, I did not erect a monument of stones, but I will remember over 25 years ago, a quarter of a century ago, sitting in a, a young pastor's office and conversing with him and uh, again uh, seeking to impress him with my layman's knowledge of the scriptures and he reached behind his desk and pulled a volume off of his bookshelf and kind of flipped it over to me and said go home and read this and the book was the gospel according to Jesus by John MacArthur a book I've mentioned rather often and as I read it and and wept over the book as I said this seems to bring to a close 17 years of of wondering of struggling of trying to sort out what I heard what I read what I saw in the church why why does everything not seem to line up and there were two things that this pastor kind of brought together for me and as an experiential thing while usually these things tend to bring great angst to the to the minds and the hearts of professing Christians it brought great solace to my heart the angst had been for 17 years this brought solace and that is the dual concepts that go together of God's sovereignty in salvation and Jesus lordship that is proclaimed in the gospel and applied at salvation those things go together and as we see Jesus proclaiming the gospel and in uh, that wonderful book John MacArthur uh, engages in just a bit of uh, of sarcasm when he notes that he believed that Jesus would have failed the evangelism course at every major seminary in our country and I agree that Jesus was not about superficial decisions Jesus was not about raising hands he was not about getting people to sign off on cards or even filling up baptismal pools as wonderful as that that is Jesus was about people making a decisive break with their past lives and coming and following after him embracing him with their totality as their Lord and their Savior and so we find this one who was most despised of men most outcast of the society being extended the hand of grace by our Savior and responding to the words follow me and he did and so let's look at Levi's story Matthew the tax collector the one if you're old enough to have uh, used the King James Bible as a youth Matthew the publican the publican uh, and so we see there in verse 27 we're introduced that after this period of ministry or really during the time of this Galilean ministry around the Sea of Galilee we know a number of things had taken place. Jesus had performed miracles. People had been healed. And yet there were still his detractors. His popularity was growing. But again, there were those that sought uh, to do him great harm. And so as he walks along, probably along the, the seashore, he saw this man, Levi, at his tax collector's booth. Uh, probably some type of toll booth either related to uh, the roads of the day or the commerce from the sea or who knows what type of tax this man collected but he was a tax collector not a chief tax collector like Zacchaeus that will be introduced to in chapter 19 but kind of a, a subcontractor 
to the chief tax collector. And so he would have been a despised man, at best uh, one who colluded and collaborated with that great enemy Rome, but probably more often would have been seen as corrupt and even a traitor uh, to the, the Jewish nation. And so he was an outcast in a way not dissimilar from those that Jesus had healed, namely the leper and the paralytic. This man would not have fit in. I'm, I'm often dismayed. Sometimes when I, I see the, the church and it's a collection of the best and the brightest of the community, right? you know, the doctors, the lawyers, and the Indian chiefs, you know, and the, you know, the, the straight-A students and the cheerleaders and, you know, all that stuff. And they need Jesus. Don't, don't you know, you know they, they do. But so many times we, we forget about those that are on the margins of society. And, and, and Jesus didn't. And, and he saw this man that, that was despised. And if you're going to begin a movement, and, and what we see in, in Luke's gospel is Jesus beginning to form this core group of, of 12 disciples that would be with him for this short three-year ministry upon earth. And so, again, we're, we're going to think, hey, get the sharpest guys. You know, I, I just spent a day yesterday with old fraternity brothers. Forty years, I haven't seen these guys. And you know what? They got old in those 40 years. I don't know what happened to them. Uh, I haven't changed a bit, but but those guys got old. There's some gray hairs and bald heads and guys on canes, but... But, again, I haven't changed. And I remember sitting in those fraternity meetings talking about those sharp guys. We need to get these sharp guys. Well, folks, the ministry of the church is not to get sharp guys. We never could figure out what that means. It meant their heads were pointy or their elbows were pointy. or I don't know. I don't know what was pointy about them. But we're not in the business of getting sharp people to come to a sharp place and act sharp together. We're in the business calling sinners to repentance. And so Jesus looked at this man who would have fit in the category of the most despised of all of the citizens of Palestine. And in forming this inner group, a group which we're thinking, well, we want these attractive type people so that, that, that you know, they'll look at the men and, you know, the, the guys will want to be like them and the girls will want to be with him. That's who we want to get. That's how you determine a great pastor. Tall, good hair, good teeth. You know, that, that, that's, that's the pre-way. Go, go to, the, to the Baptist website. It's right there. You'll see it. But Jesus reaches to this man that nobody wanted to be with, that everybody despised. He said, you know what? You're going to be foundational. To a movement that's going to shake the world. That I'm going to invest myself in you for three years. And while you're going to flounder and flail just a bit, this is decisive. I'm entrusting myself to you, and you're going to entrust yourself to me. And so this man, Zacchaeus, was hated of all men. But Jesus did what? And I wish we had more details. You know, in a novel, when a character's introduced, sometimes they'll go on this long kind of a rabbit trail telling you about where this cat came from. 
okay, where this character came from. And I always find that kind of interesting. I wish I knew, you know, maybe Levi had come out to the river and heard John the Baptist and his scathing rebuke of the Pharisees that would have hated Levi's guts and heard John the Baptist say, you're a brood of vipers. And then to the, to the tax collectors, listen, just be straightforward and honest in your dealings. And then maybe he began to hear Jesus. And, and maybe even Jesus looked, and I can remember growing up, and even now sometimes when I speak, there's a sense as you look upon the faces of those in your congregation, I think God is dealing with that individual. It's hard to know, and we don't know what's going on in the heart and minds of individuals. I mean, there may be somebody who slouched back in their seat and, you know, just look like they're completely uninvolved, and God may be doing a dynamic work in their life. So we can't, it's not 100% certainty. But maybe this man Levi, maybe he caught Jesus' eyes. He's wrestling with something. He's wrestling with something. And you know what? I'm going to pick him out of the lot of all men. And I'm going to invite him into this inner circle. We don't know. All we know is what we're told here, that Jesus comes along and he extends this very simple call. Two words, follow me. Very similar to what he had said to the fishermen in our text a few weeks ago. I'm going to make you fishers of men. I want you to leave behind those boats and those nets and your family and your friends and everything that's familiar, everything that you value. I want you to come and follow me. I want you to leave behind this, this wealth that you've accumulated, Levi, and I want you to follow me. And Luke adds his editorial note, and leaving everything, he rose and followed him. Seems to me to be once and for all, to be decisive. He left everything as the fisherman left anything. And typically what people say was, well, that was a unique circumstance. And indeed it was. I, I freely admit that. Jesus is forming the inner circle. He's forming the 12, okay? But, I, and you know, I really wish that the Bible would spell out, okay, Jesus said, come follow me. And they went into a, a, a little area and, you know, he, he prayed the sinner's prayer and, and, and he got saved. And, and right, you know, I wish we knew all those things, okay? We don't. He made a decision to leave what he cherished behind and follow this very enigmatic man whose name was Jesus, who probably he was aware of, was causing a certain amount of consternation, but he knew he was unique. He didn't know everything any more than any other convert that genuinely comes to Christ knows everything at the moment of which the Holy Spirit takes the gospel of Jesus Christ, takes the imperishable seed of the new birth and brings it to fruition in the life of those who hear and brings them to the new birth and they repent and they believe and they follow Jesus. He didn't know everything, but he left everything to come and to follow Jesus. And so, look, if you will, go, go like I said, we're going to see this theme of discipleship, of lordship, time and time again. So let's go forward just for a few pages to chapter 9. Verse 23. Did Matthew or, did Matthew or Levi, did he make a decision? He did. 
He chose to leave everything. Was it his decision to make? Yes, it was his decision to make. Okay? And for anyone and everyone who ever experiences salvation, who has ever experienced salvation, there's a moment in time, whether they can really define it very, very clearly or not, where they forsake the old and embrace the new. We can talk about it as repentance, as turning from sin to Jesus Christ. We can turn talk about it as deciding to follow Jesus. We can talk about it as moving from unbelief, our unconverted state, to believing, from, from a state of being outside of the realm of the grace of God to, being, to experiencing the grace of God. Okay, Those are all legitimate ways of speaking what it means to become a follower of Jesus. There's someone a few years ago, I can't remember if it was an article or a book, but the, the gist of it was, uh, are you a fan or are you a follower? And the idea in, it, in the modern church in my lifetime is that most of us that inhabit the modern church, we're fans. Well, let me tell you something. There's no such thing as a fan in heaven. There's no such thing as a Christian who's just a fan. You're either a follower or you're an unbeliever. You're either a disciple or you're a non-believer. There's no middle ground. Are there mature, belie- uh, are there mature disciples and immature disciples? Yes, sir. Yes, ma'am. Are there m- disciples at, at, at various places in the journey? Yes, yes they are. Are there disciples that struggle with sin issues? Uh, Well, yeah. Well, yeah. We all do. We still wrestle with those things, and we will until the day we see Jesus. But Jesus still calls as a part and a parcel of the call of the gospel of Jesus Christ, as the message of Jesus Christ crucified and raised from the dead and ascended to the Father and returning one day, he calls men and women and boys and girls to deny themselves, take up the cross and follow him. Look at verse 23. And he said to all, if anyone would come after me. Now, folks, I believe the paraphrase is anybody would like to see heaven. If anybody would like to have their sins forgiven. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life would lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and and loses or forfeits himself? Now, I'm going to tell you, I've wrestled with those words since I was 15 years old. I've told you that many times before. I mean, that's tough stuff, folks. It's not a game. Jesus never invited people, come, come forward at the end of this meeting. I've got these cards for you to sign. I'll give you a T-shirt if you'll let me baptize you. That was not the appeal. It was to, to deny yourself. You see my shoe? Y'all see that? Did y'all know that shoe fits perfectly in my mouth? It's an amazing thing. I, I really don't understand why it fits so, so well and actually goes into my mouth so often but it seems like far too frequently maybe I'm far too eager to discuss the things I hate but namely anything that touches on the prosperity gospel and I found myself in that discussion at lunch yesterday with people I care about very very deeply with a former roommate that's sitting here at my left side suffering from the tremors of Parkinson here's a man my age my age young Young folks, 
By the way, Karen, if you do another 18 years, you'll still be younger than me. Just think about that, okay? So, but sitting there, tremor, can't, you know, already very obvious. And somebody brings up their affinity for this type of thinking. And I don't go nuts. I'm, I'm really nice. I'm really a nice guy. And, and, and so I begin to, to speak of, of what, what, what theologically, biblically, where the problem is, the misunderstanding of Isaiah 53, the confusion in the covenants, things we've talked about many, many times. Now, here's the dichotomy that's real, though. Jesus also promises that he is the living water, the one who drinks from him shall never thirst, the one that, that, that drinks of him shall live abundantly. And folks, I believe there is a, a reality to the abundant life right now. And there's also a reality to deny yourself. But however those things go together, in the atoning work of Christ, in the call of the gospel, in the extension of salvation to any individual, there is no place in the Bible that God promises that he is going to smooth out the rough places of your life. That, that, that in the atonement, his provision is for your temporal happiness. In fact, Jesus says just the opposite as well as the apostles. Let, let me tell you something, folks. If you come to Christ your life may become more difficult. That's just a fact. That's just a fact. And I hate to see people deceived. And it's a bait-and-switch offer. That is not the gospel according to Jesus. It's not the gospel according to the apostles, a follow-up book by John MacArthur. It's not a, the gospel according to Christ the Lord, a group of Reformed scholars coming back and taking a look at it. It's not the gospel according to John Piper in Letters to a Friend. It's not the gospel according to David Platt in his book Radical. It's not the gospel according to Francis Chan in Crazy Love. And on and on I could go. These people that have come to understand to recover that the gospel is Christ's command to give up that which is completely worthless for that which is completely priceless. Yeah. And so we see this. And this, this man left behind everything, standing in stark contrast to the rich young ruler. Jesus said, sell everything you got, give it to the poor, come follow me. What was the question? Jesus now think about this. If you want to look, look in Luke 18, you can look. This young man who any church growth guy that had any sense, I mean, Rick Warren would have eaten him up, okay? So I started to say Bill Hybels, but that wouldn't work too well these days, would it? Another, you Google it if you don't know what I'm talking about. But here's this sharp guy. Jesus he doesn't ask, notice, I want to be in your inner circle. I want to be in your inner circle. He said, what? What do I do to inherit eternal life? That was the question. Not do I have to, how do I get on the ground floor of something great? And what did Jesus say? Go sell everything. What was he getting at? What you've got to have is a change of heart. You've got to have a change of outlook, a change of mind. 
something fundamentally and radically has got to be redefined, reoriented in your life. You have to become a new creature in Christ Jesus. And the man went away sad. And, of course, what does Jesus say? Well, it's hard for the rich to enter the kingdom of heaven, but guess what? Guess what? The camel, if God decides he needs to go through the eye of the needle, guess what? A camel can go through there. Okay? So nobody's excluded for the sake of the gospel. And so we see this concept again. Go back to to Matthew chapter uh, 13, if you will. This section is often identified as the kingdom parables or parables of the kingdom, parable of the sower, parable of the weeds, seed and leaven, etc., etc., etc. Two very, very short parables in Matthew 13, verse 44. This is what coming to Christ is like. This is what it means to come to Jesus. You, now, many times in testimonies you hear this. I became a Christian at a young age, whatever, 6, 8, 10, 12. I, may, I notice the I, I made him my Lord when I was good and ready, whenever that was. Let me tell you something. You may not have understood it, but the guy that saved you is the Lord Jesus Christ. And the moment he saves you, he's not only your Savior, he's your Lord. And folks, from that moment forward, he may hug your neck or he may kick you in the seat of the pants. He may do both simultaneously. I don't know. But he is about the business of shaping you according to the the directives of his lordship from that moment. Are we perfected in the moment of our conversion? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. But he begins a process. He begins a work in you that will find its completion on the day of Christ Jesus. Okay? And the truth is most of us ought to be very much a lot further down the road than we are, if you want to be real honest about it. Okay. So Jesus says this in verse 44, Gospel of Matthew 13. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. So this guy is walking, stumbling around, kind of like Joey Brittner out surveying some property and so forth, so on, stumbling around. You know, he's got these guys helping him. He says, listen, if I wanted it done right, I'd have done it myself, you know. Kind of that kind of thing going on. And... uh, that's actually a Brad Vines comment, but I thought it was kind of applicable to Joey, too. It, it is. Okay, Janet agrees. But Joey stumbles into a treasure chest in the middle of that field. You didn't know that, did you, Janet? He, he, he never has. Well, you don't know that for sure. So Joey covers it back up. And he says, well, this is, you know, they're, they're wanting... for this. I think I can liquidate everything I've got, Janet and the whole get. Maybe I can get a few bucks for her too. And I'm going to liquidate it all in view of the great treasure. I surrender everything for the greater treasure that I have found. Do you get it? Do you get the illustration? That everything is given up in the name of gaining the greater treasure. That's the kingdom of heaven. Everything is forsaken. The same thing in the next parable. Look at 45. 
The kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls. And on finding one pearl of great value, and it sold all that he had and bought it. He has some things that have some value. But he finds something of greater value. Matthew had the franchise for collecting taxes there at the Sea of Galilee. It was probably relatively lucrative. But guess what? Whatever he understood and whatever he heard in that call, he realized that there was a something of there was a pearl that it was of greater value than the, all the taxes that he could collect as a tax collector, and he left it behind and followed Jesus Christ. And Jesus still says the same thing. If you go to Luke chapter fourteen. <clears throat> One of the things that I observe, I think, is the idolatry of the nuclear family. Now, is the nuclear family, mother, father, and children, very, very important? It is. It is foundational. If we want to make disciples, the primary place that the disciples will be made is within the home. But what I fear is every home is trying to be a mini Walt Disney World in which they're trying to keep the children sufficiently entertained that they will be friends with them forever. You know, as I've told you before, if I ever get behind you and you're picking up dinner and you go to two different drive through restaurants, I will stop you. I will, I, I will run it. I will demolition derby your car. I will crash it. I will pull you out of that car. I will chew you upside and one day. Listen, tell them to eat what you're buying or go hungry. Amen. Yeah. Yeah. Let them go to bed. They won't starve for long. But notice here what Jesus says in Luke 14. If you're going to come after him, there's got to be some disconnect. There's got to be something in which you understand that I am the greatest priority of life. You've actually got to, in, in some metaphorical yet real way, hate your father and mother. Now, again, that's one of those tensions to be found in Scripture. Does the Bible say to us to honor father and mother? Yes, it does. But Jesus is using it in a different context. He's simply saying that the distance between your love for me as your Lord and your Savior has got to be so great that it seems like that your obligation, your affection for your father and mother is, 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 is as hate. That's, that's, and that's kind of the way they talked in the ancient world, okay? We don't talk like that these days. But it has a very real meaning when Jesus is to be uppermost in our affections, and he is because we recognize that we're great sinners who have been given a great forgiveness and made the promise of a great future. We love him. And, and I, it, it, you know, and I, I admit this, and, I, and again, I was talking to a friend of mine, uh, one of the doctors in, in Africa, and I, you know, I've, I've always felt this, and I didn't, I, I just figured I was just a, terrible Christian. I mean, most of y'all can amen that. But he talked about knowing men that loved Jesus. And sometimes I really have a hard time loving Jesus. 
maybe y'all don't res- maybe that doesn't resonate with y'all. I hope it doesn't really. I love the Bible. Uh, I love the truth. But sometimes I, I have. But do I love Jesus, the one who died on the cross for me? Has the Holy Spirit made him such a real person in my life that I love him? That he is uppermost in my affections. That's, that's kind of tough, isn't it? But that's what being a new creature in Christ, that's what the implications are of being this new creature. Well, I'm running behind. I've got a big old clock back there now. I don't even have to look at my wristwatch. Let's look. Levi left everything and followed Jesus and threw him a great big party. And we should too. And invite all your friends in low places. I guess Garth Brooks would have been proud. Yeah. Because Matthew invited those that would associate with him because he had met Jesus. The one who was forgiven sins, the one who had called him to follow after him. And so he invites these guys. And you know what? There were some Baptist critics in the crowd. Sure were, weren't they? They're called Pharisees there. There were some people that, we ain't never done it that way before. But the Pharisees looked at him and they, they grumbled. Golly, we're going to, we're, and we're going to find that all through the Gospels. This, this group that follows after Jesus, and all they're looking to do is catch him in something. And eventually they do. And they place him on the cross by trumped-up charges. But you're eating with people that we would not even speak to on the street. Remember, table fellowship was an indication or, uh, of the acceptance of someone. It was saying we're social equals, that we're, we, we, we are, are friends, we, we love one another. And so Jesus goes to the tax collector's house and he eats with the other tax collectors. And we're told in other places that there are other sinners there in the midst. Who knows what type of people would associate with this man, Levi. And they, they grumbled at, at the disciples that were with Jesus. And they asked them, why do you eat with tax collectors and sinners? Why do you eat with these people that we would have nothing to do with because of our piety? And Jesus answered them, they know something that you don't know. And the thing that they know that you don't know is the thing that will allow them to enter the kingdom of heaven long before you do. In fact, it is the thing that will stand between you in the kingdom of heaven. It will stand between you and me. It will stand between you and the experience of salvation and you and the forgiveness of sins. How many times have you heard me say there is nobody nowhere at no time that has ever been saved that doesn't feel, first realize what? I'm not a good person that just needs a little extra edge to be good enough to please God. I am a sinner in need of a Savior. In fact, I'm a great sinner in need of the greatest Savior, and that is the only thing that's ultimately going to matter. And so Jesus came to speak to those who knew they were sinners. He didn't come to deal. In, and what does he mean when he says that he, he speaks metaphorically? I, I, I didn't come for those who don't need a physician. I came to those that know they're sick. 
Again, people that are healthy don't, don't make an appointment with the doctor. It's really not that much fun. They do things to me when I go see a doctor that are entirely unpleasant. So I've got to have a good reason for going to see those guys. And so Jesus says it's only sick folks that go to the doctors. And so let me explain it with clarity. I have not come to call the righteous. Now, what is he saying? Not those that are truly righteous, those that are righteous in Christ. He's saying, I did not come to deal with people that think they have a self-developed, self-earned, self-styled type of righteousness. I came to call those who know they have offended God, they have violated his, his law, they have transgressed everything they know about God, and they have offended his character. I came to call those people, and I came to call them to repentance. I came to extend to them the great privilege of coming after me. I came to tell them that you can give away, that you can forsake that which has no eternal value, and embrace me who will give to you things that will endure into eternity. That's what the call is all about. Jesus is not incarnate any longer. He is not walking the streets of Clay, Alabama. If anyone tells you, uh, hey, I saw Jesus walking down the street, be a little skeptical, please, if you would. And I'm telling you, in this day and age, it's difficult. It's difficult to know your own heart. Jeremiah says the heart is desperately wicked. Who, who can know it? Sometimes I, I'm amazed and appalled at, at my own heart and mind and so Jesus is not here to say leave everything in fact it seems like typically he says to us yes you're going to follow me but you're going to follow me in your vocation that that vocation that you're involved in even your retirement that you're involved in it is to be surrendered to my lordship it is under my authority. It is a Jesus-styled retirement. It is a Jesus-styled career that you will yield to my authority to go into the world and to preach the gospel. When I was about eight years old, I went to our children's camp. Back in the day, uh, gosh, 53 years ago, wow. Fifty-three years ago, uh, at, that, at that time, all the local associations would go out and buy a little piece of farm property and develop their own children's camp. And uh, we bought some property up in the outskirts of Somerville, Georgia, Camp Poplar Springs. And uh, we went down there, and it was rough that first year. It, it, it was rough. No bathrooms, no, no running water, no nothing. And for the first time in my life, I, I heard the song. I have decided to follow Jesus. And a lot of times we kind of make light of that song, uh, kind of those of us that are skeptical of what we call decisionism. But there is a reality that when God genuinely does a work in your life, your decision is what? I have decided to follow Jesus. And ultimately there is no turning back. That, that the cross is before me and the world is behind me. And so I think that's what I want to end on today, Brian, when we get to to that point it's uh, um, again what does Jesus mean to us sitting here today as he still says to us if you're unconverted here today the call of the gospel is come and follow me if you are converted here today do you know what the call of the gospel is to you today 
is come and follow me. And do you know how? You know that one day you made a decision to come and follow Jesus and he changed your life? Is that today you still say, yes, I'm coming to follow Jesus. That's the deal. You know, I, in, in counseling people, and, and sometimes I, I deal with people that are not certain about their salvation, I have a little bit of interest in 20 years ago, they did this or did that. What's going on right now? What's going on right now? Are you surrendered to the Lordship of Christ? Are you living for Him? I wasn't there, and I don't know. But He who began a good work in you is going to complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. Jesus still says, come and follow me. And we still say, I have. I have decided to follow Jesus. Right? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your grace, for your goodness, for your willingness to exchange with us that which we possess that maybe we think is of great value, but which is ultimately of no value. And you will take that from us, even the burdens of that old life, and give to us a new life in the Lord Jesus Christ, the forgiveness of sins and the hope of eternal salvation. Lord, uh, what a great story. Uh, what, a, what a great illustration of there are none that are ever too far beyond the grace of God to hear and respond to the gospel of his salvation. Lord, may we uh, realize that. May we recognize that friends and family members that seem so estranged from God that can in a moment experience the work of the Holy Spirit and hear the very voice of God in their inward being stand up. And whether it's their tax books or whatever it is that they, they value so highly right now, they can come and they can follow Jesus. Lord, we lift this prayer in Jesus' name.